Welcome everyone and thanks for joining us in an episode of Users First. I'm your host Alessio Ferracuti and today we are having as a guest of our episode Eleni. Eleni works as a strategist and design director in the area of Boston, currently working for MedPow, a large design agency in the United States. And today we're going to talk about the whole process of website redesigns, from the discovery phase and talking to clients and stakeholders to the development stage, what the, what the steps are, as well as building a foundation for the website. So how can we reuse a website in the next three, five years without having to do all the work that was supposed to be done in the beginning? Thanks for joining us, Eleni, and uh, welcome to Users First. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you in the podcast, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Tell us, how did you get where you're at right now as a design director? What is your background? Sure. What did you study? Yeah, so when I was in undergrad, I studied graphic design, and I really loved design, and I went straight into the digital space, um, and I stayed there. And I love the digital space because there's an interactive component. Obviously, there's a human factor. There's somebody on the other end who's interactive with something that you're designing. So that was really mm. exciting to me. Uh, it didn't feel static, um, which I love print for its own reasons, but I love that um, the interactivity that comes with um, designing for interfaces or designing for products and websites and applications and so on. So mm -hmm. I started my career in that space. Um, as I advanced in my career and I had the opportunity to sit at the table with the client and the business owner, I really appreciated that part of the conversation and that part of the phase of the project. I realized that I really loved the discovery piece of the work, the strategy piece yeah, of the work. Common. Yeah, so it just made sense that I continued sort of on that path, keeping my design skills, but trying to think a little bit more broadly about the discipline. Um, and so as I moved through, I ended up going back to school and I received my master's in communications management. And that for me combined communications and design and strategy and kind of brought it all together for me that from a creative director standpoint uh, really helped me out. So I ended up moving um, you know, throughout my career from an entry level designer into, you know, a senior designer, associate creative director to creative director type positions as I moved through. Um, and then as I continued in my career past that, and I landed at MadPow, uh, what was great there is I was able to stretch my skills further. So again, st still being able to keep my design skills because I consider myself a hybrid. I can do a user experience design, UI and visual design, but I can think about it from a creative director standpoint, but also the strategy piece. So being a mad pal allowed me to stretch that piece and be able to be exposed to bigger clients, bigger projects, uh, where strategy was important and where clients were coming in to get help from us from a strategy perspective. Um, so that's mm -hmm. basically how I ended up where I'm at today. Awesome. I, I, I love the introduction. Basically, your whole life in uh, in 35 seconds, uh, you said. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. Um, I wish I could do the same, by the way. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to say that I also shared the same thoughts about uh, how uh, the, the design field overall, although I'm not, I'm not a director, uh, I'm at the beginning of my, of my career as a UX designer, I shared the same thoughts about uh, switching from a graphic design background to UX design that is way more interesting um, mm -hmm. knowing the, 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 overall, the, the overall process, uh, talking to clients, talking to stakeholders, uh, being involved in the discovery process. 
it is much more exciting than, than uh, although I also love print, it's beautiful flyers and business cards, right? Yes. Uh, it is a lot more exciting to actually be involved in the discovery process because one day you are designing and one day you are, you're doing something else. It is just, um, I, I guess it increases your drive in your work. Yeah. Right, and you, and you and you thrive. Um, I wanted to ask you something about uh, your uh, creative uh, creative uh, directing uh, role. Like, what what is it like? Like, what 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 does a creative director do? Yeah. So, what does a creative director do? There's a lot of different thoughts and philosophies around that. So, my philosophy is, I am there to help guide the work, guide the team, make sure that from an objective and a higher goals perspective, we're meeting those goals and objectives from a client angle, making sure that the client gets what they need. What they need. So, we usually set up front what is it that we need to do. So, if you're designing a website, for example, you need to have a certain look and feel. It needs to map. The the brand, we certainly make sure that, that that matches, of course, but then thinking about the audiences as well. For example, I have a lot of experience working in higher education and doing website design for universities um, and the academic space. And in that space, you have a lot of different audiences. So you have to consider those audiences. But basically what, the, what I feel the job of the creative director is to guide that vision moving forward. And so you establish what those goals and objectives are at the beginning. You do research to figure out what comes out of research. What is it that we should be focusing on? And then how does it manifest itself visually? And not only visually, but from a content perspective as well. Because I think the creative director area, it could be a huge umbrella that covers the visual design, the content piece as well, kind of bringing all those pieces together, as well as user experience. So for me, it's those combining those three levels of UX content visual design and making sure that we're focused on those goals. So when I work with a team, when I have worked with teams in the past where I'm leading um, that creative direction vision, so to speak, <laughs> it's making sure that the team understands what our goals and objectives, if we have a creative brief outlining what it is that we're trying to do what for the client, um, and then reviewing that work and making sure that we're aligned and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's not just a matter Absolutely. of taste. It's also understanding that the people under you have a perspective and that just because they have a different perspective doesn't mean that it's wrong and allowing people to kind of grow within that space too, right? It's not about just saying yes or no. It's about allowing these different ideas to emerge. And as long as they fit that creative vision or the, the objectives and the goals, I think that should be guided and moved forward, if that makes sense. And that also helps build your team internally into this team where it feels collaborative, right? It's not a dictatorship. <laughs> I don't look at creative directorship as that. It's more it. of you are this kind of leader that is sort of helping guide people and mentor people along as well as um, getting to what the client needs. Exactly. And it's beautiful what you what you just said about um, looking for innovation and allowing people that work in different departments. Um, although you're the creative director, right? And maybe you have um, maybe you have more power, uh, let's say, uh, you know, you could, you could, you could make certain decisions, but you allow, you allow, uh, innovation and, um, and new ideas to, to come in and, uh, different perspectives, like you were saying, that is very, very important in a team because if people feel like their, their, their opinion is not valued, um, they feel they have constraints, um, mm -hmm. there, 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 can, there can be also conflicts in teams and, um, and creative ideas uh, won't be the same as um, as you as you were saying. 
Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering, how does it work when uh, usually like a, like a client comes to you and, uh, you know, they say, hey, Eleni, we need, a, we need a redesign for a website. And you mm-hmm. go like, okay, lots of ideas come through, <laughs> come into your mind. Okay, we're going to do branding, we're going to do this, yeah. and we're going to do that, we're going to do images and that. And, but what, what do you say to actually to the client? Like, what do you, what do you do? What, what are the first, the first steps? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of times people will come to us and they'll say they'll want a website redesign, right? And they're thinking about the end product, the shiny thing at the end. But in order (laughs) to get to that shiny thing at the end, we need to do a bunch of work to get there. And it's not just work that we have to do as an agency and as designers, but it's also work that the client has to do, right? They have to come to the table ready to do some of that work. So to start with, if, you know, we typically start with a discovery phase. And that's usually understanding, you know, what are their goals? What are their objectives? Why are they even trying to do this redesign and trying to get to the heart of the matter? Because they might have one reason, but as you're talking to them, you might realize, you know, you would be better suited if we took this approach or that approach. So having those conversations up front to be transparent about, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? This is also a phase where we can do a lot of secondary research, like let's do a competitive analysis and look at what are your competitors doing? What are you trying to do? And, and compare from a high level perspective, whether that's, you know, you know, looking at brands and seeing how well are people positioning their brands from a competitive landscape, but also looking at what kind of features and functions might they have um, based on what it is that you might want to do and just taking a look at it from that angle. It's also looking at materials that are already existing, marketing materials that the company may already have. And if you're lucky enough to have the budget, um, and typically at MadPow, we always start with research, is to be able to do primary research with end users. So um, in the absence of that, and I've had that experience either in other companies or working for myself, you can, you know, look into secondary research and and do some of that. Or if the client has access to some, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, why would you prefer or... primary? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Eleni. No, no, go, go for why it. Why would you prefer uh, primary research to secondary research? Because primary research is speaking directly to an end user. It's speaking to, if you're creating a product, it's speaking to the person who might be using that product. So if it's an existing product, we can speak to people who are using it and figure out what's working, what's not working to make improvements on it. If it's a brand new product, we might be testing a concept or an idea or asking questions of you know people to say and participants to say, you know, would this idea appeal to you, you know, be able to show them some wireframes perhaps or, or thoughts around it to get some initial um, kind of market feedback. Um, so that can be very valuable um, if, if people have access um, to either the, the funds and the budget to do that or the people to talk to. Yes, yes. And what are the, the downsides of uh, doing the secondary research? Because not, not every company can afford primary research because it is, yeah. it is an investment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all clients are different. They all have yeah. uh, different budgets, right? What, what, what are the, the downsides of, uh, of doing that? Uh, of of uh, not secondary having research? the downside of not being able to do member interviews, for example, or primary mm-hmm. research. I think it's just not having that firsthand perspective. Um, but I've, like I said, in my career, I've also worked for myself. And so I have found instances where clients don't have mm-hmm. those kinds of budget. And so you have mm-hmm. to work within their realm and just being able to do um, a lot of competitive landscape research, just doing research in general around a topic to see what's going on in the landscape to better understand that world is also helpful. 
helpful to figure out where relative to the competitive landscape does your client stand, you know, being able to have those conversations. The other thing you can do with, um, other research that you can do, which you would have access to people is um, your client um, having stakeholder interviews, speaking to members of the team within your clients to be able to gain more access there. So if you're working on a product, being able to speak to members of the marketing department or maybe speaking to sales and understanding how their perspective is, speaking to the development team or speaking to the business group that owns the product, things like that, being able to get that internal insights is also helpful and doesn't, it doesn't cost the company money. It's more their time, if that makes sense, because they're giving you access to their people. So that's another good way to gain additional insight if they don't have the budget to speak to the outside, you know, public or members from that perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is also a way to uh, kind of educate people about what UX designers do, because you're going all over the place, right? So yeah. you're doing two things at once. How do they say? Um, two birds with one stone, right? Yeah, so you're educating yeah. people and you're also doing the discovery process of your product. Mm -hmm. So like, Absolutely. Well, you know, what do we know about our product and how do we tell people, you know, what UX design does? And as well, by doing that, you educate stakeholders uh, <clears throat> on the process itself because you're explaining them okay now we're doing this the reason why we're doing this is because you know we're going to get to this stage and we will know certain things so that you know we'll be sure 100 percent or or 80 percent that our product is going to work for our users and we're mm -hmm. going to go into the prototyping stage uh much more confident yeah, absolutely. It's it's important to gain that inside perspective and to get a better handle of what are the different groups, um, what are the goals for each of the different groups, right? Because you're going to speak to sales and they're going to have one perspective. You're going to speak to marketing and they're going to have a different perspective. It's important to take those into account. But as a designer, our job is to sort of get rid of the noise and take that information that is relevant to the user experience and say, well, how is this information from sales relevant to the user and to the, what I'm designing and be able to take it from there? But the plus side too is, is that when you present that information back Back to the client when you have a presentation back to say here's our either our research readout or our findings based on our discovery you can say you know we took a look at all these different angles and all these different perspectives to take to have a holistic perspective on the user experience as we move into product design yes yes the whole perspective is uh, extremely important i also uh do that very often and every time i do it i i'm always impressed by the results because oh i i, I can't believe it i just found out about this just because i talked to this person sometimes mm -hmm. it's not designing by yourself or just uh telling someone what to do it's by taking in perspectives and you know eventually coming up with your own idea or uh with your own decision but uh talking to other people is so so helpful yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was wondering, when clients uh, come to you for a redesign, does it happen that they actually want to build um, a foundation for the website? So maybe in like three or five years, mm -hmm. uh, they, they don't need to restart again uh, with a website redesign, but they can, uh, they can kind of maintain on the things that, uh, that they have built in the, in, the, in the past. How do you build that foundation for uh, websites? 
Yeah, um, that's definitely a big question that comes up um, because it's such a huge investment. And depending on the size of your organization, you can imagine if you are a 10,000 person company and you're doing a redesign, it's not something that you want to be redoing every year um, because of the um, effort and cost and also um, just from a resource standpoint as well. So typically, there's a mm -hmm. couple of different ways to look at it. There's the design perspective and there's the development perspective. So from a, let's start from the design perspective. And if you start there, um, I think the important thing is to create a strong foundation by looking at obviously the first things that you need to organize when you start a website redesign, right? You're thinking about the information architecture. How am I going to organize this website in a way that makes sense to my end user? What are my name, my main navigation elements going to be? But be really paying attention and segmenting them and label them and labeling them in a way that does not create chaos later. Meaning if you need to add more content to the site later, you're not creating a new bucket. You're not creating a hmm. new navigational item. You've organized things in such a way that you can fit that content in the right place. And so if that focus happens from the beginning, you should in theory be able to take that content and fit it in an existing bucket without having to do all that. Um, so first and foremost, getting your IA structure down is very important. Secondly, as we start thinking about blowing out that sitemap and looking at the sections and we start looking at the page level is looking at each page and considering what are the goals of this page and what are the goals of this section. So if we have, um, you know, and about us section. What is this really about? Are we trying to differentiate ourselves from competitors and say, this is what makes us unique and why you should hire us, for example? What are the goals? And then thinking about that page even deeper of, you know, if you think about it like an upside down triangle, starting high level and at each page, you should always have a call to action at the end, something that's gonna take the user some, somewhere else. Um, it doesn't have to be a hard sell, but just don't leave people in a dead end. So thinking about how you're going to structure your pages as you go along through the site. And then that way, when you start wireframing, you kind of have this structure already, right? You're saying, I'm going to start high level. I'm going to create these content blocks that are supporting my main messaging. And then I'm going to dive deeper into my call to action and drive a user to action. So thinking about all those things and how those things will play out. So mm -hmm. typically I say, build a strong foundation there. Um, obviously, we start layering in the visual design elements that should be tight, tightly uh, connected to your brand um, and show that so that if we know that not everybody lands on the homepage if they're doing a Google search. So wherever a person lands on your website, they should know who you are, what the site is about, and you know what they're looking for. They should be able to find it, even if it's not on that particular page. So thinking about those things that a user could come in at any page and considering what needs to go on there to, to accommodate that. So once we have that and we have the visual layer, I would say, obviously, the content is super, super important. Um, mm -hmm. And when I say content, I also mean words and photography and illustration and videos. So if you build out the structure of your site, consider it like as if you were building a house, you are building a house that will last you a long time, but you can decorate it however you want. If you change your mind in five yes. years and you want to change it, you can, but the structure is there and it's got good bones. That's how we should consider building mm -hmm. a website. The wireframes and the page structures are the bricks and the, and yes. the sand and the cement. 
uh, yes. below the house. I don't even mm-hmm. know how to make a house. But, yeah, <laughs> yes, but no, exactly. So, yeah. And then basically that way you can update the things that matter are updating your content, right? Updating your content and your messaging and your photography. That's the unique, from my perspective, my personal perspective, it's that's what makes your brand unique. It's your content. So if you can update that as you go along, that website should last you. So that's the design aspect of it. There's the development aspect of it, which is a little bit more, you know, getting into the the nitty gritty and the weeds, but also thinking about building it in a content management system. So whether you're building it in WordPress, for example, or you're using Drupal or any kind of you know system like that, you wanna consider how are you gonna build your pages so that they're modular and things are built in components and in a way that's easy for you to update that information as you need. So if you need to update a component, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> um, if you need to add a page, it's not the end of the world, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And then, and also considering there's the back end of a content management system that can be um, can be refined so it's a little bit user easier for the person who's going to be making the edits. So there's usually going to be a content owner in an organization who's going to be editing the website when they log in. There's there's things that we can do for that interface to make it a little bit easier for them. And some of it starts with labeling and taxonomy or the way that we've structured content as well. So there's a couple of different ways, as I mentioned, there's the design portion and the development portion. And I think if you can follow some of those, then that website can take you to the next level. Uh, because from a development standpoint, there's always going to be you know, updates and, and that can evolve. But if you've built it right, you can just make those incremental changes and you're not making, you know, large structural changes. Exactly. And I can so, and I can, and I can totally see the power of this because I've noticed that a lot of uh, companies uh, fail in this. They don't know how to uh, make a website uh, redesign. Whatever they make a website, right? They are not thinking long-term. They think like, how can I make a website as quickly and mm-hmm. as cheap as possible, right? Uh, yeah. Talking about any kind of company, could be large, could be medium. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen this mistake many times. Um, the page structure is not there. So uh, we're not accommodating the, the user needs. Maybe mm-hmm. the users need a search bar that is not there, right? Maybe images yes. are beautiful, yeah, right? The content is amazing, but the, the, the search bar is not there. The value yeah. propositions of the company are not there, right? Mm-hmm. So the page structure is definitely missing. The sitemap, the sitemap sure is there, but it's not categorized and labeled the, 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 the right way. And then in terms of development, I can see that very powerful as well because developers also want organization, right? They want to be able to edit things mm-hmm. without going like, Oh no, we have to change the whole thing again. Our our <laughs> boss, our boss has decided again to change yeah. something. Now we have to do it again. And they're right, right? It shouldn't be that way. It should be, it should be a communicative process. And um and the and designers and developers should be should be on the same page with this and and make components so uh they don't need to uh start all over again every time. I think it's a beautiful process. Uh thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Another question I had was, how do you fit uh, websites into um, service design, which is uh, like um, your expertise uh, that we haven't talked about service design yet, which is a completely yeah. different <laughs> and huge topic. But I, I would be very interested to know on um, what the connection between websites and uh, service design is. 
Service design can feel very abstract to people. It basically looks at the big picture. So we're designing basically circumstances for an experience to take place. And I know that sounds very fuzzy, but um, when we're designing a service or a product, service design looks at the big picture. It looks at all the stakeholders involved, not just the end user of the product or the service, but it looks at the people who are creating it as well. So um, in an instance of the product that we're designing, it's gonna. It's going to consider the end user, but it's going to consider, you know, if there are operational systems that need to be in place at an organization to support that product. It's looking at what are those operational um, systems that need to be put into place, right? And it looks at all the touch points that an end user might touch. It looks at the entire journey. It looks at what the channels that person might touch. So when we look, at, when we think about website design and think about service design a website would actually be a touch point of a much larger experience. So that's the way that I would consider it. And if you think about it in the world of, say, a large health insurance company, right? A health insurance company will have multiple touch points for its members. It's going to have a website. It's going to have a website where people can log in and look at their personal information. So that might be a personal portal, right? They might have chat. They're going to have a call center where a member can call in and ask questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you can see in that, that world, the website is one part of a much bigger, much bigger world. Yes. Um, so that, in a nutshell, can give you a very basic view of, of how that fits into service design. And it does. You, you explained it perfectly. Um, it's the process before and after you actually um, went on the website itself. Uh, for example, when, when you rent a car, um, after you made the booking, then... Uh, you will go. You will go in the in the rental place, and uh, you will show them some kind of barcode or maybe a printed, mm -hmm. a printed, um, a printed invoice on paper, and um, the experience there will continue. So it's the, it's the job of a service designer making sure that uh, the person um, is actually taking care of until they get the car, right? Because the the original goal is getting the car. It's not getting the piece of paper to show to the to the um, to the to the branch, right? They want to get the car. So how can we make the process also as smooth as possible in combination with the website? Yeah, and it's the entire experience, I would say. So a service designer would take that experience of renting a car and look at it from the very beginning to the very end of, hey, a user wants to rent a car. What is that process going to be like? And then as you explained exactly, like they would go in, they would show the barcode, they would get the car, but it continues with the car and driving the car and having that experience. Like what if the car breaks down, then what happens? What does the, what does the person who's renting the car do? Mm. do do they call the company? Do they call some other emergency? I don't know, somebody to help them change the tire, whatever. So a service designer would consider everything and anything that could go right or wrong and be able to figure out a solution to that so that if there was an issue, you know, what would need to happen to do it. Sometimes when you rent a car, it already has, you know, um, sometimes in the United States, like those, uh, I guess they're called transponders. Like if you have to pay a toll, right? It, it's considered as part of the cost or whatever. So thinking about all those little details, like what if that doesn't work? 
And then it shows you like a big red thing as you're going by, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So service design takes into account the entire experience, but then also like not just the person who's riding the car, but the person who's facilitating the process, the person who you go and you meet, who gives you the car, who, you know, what do they need to do their job and what kind of information do they need? How do they need to be trained? So service design looks at all the elements. It touches everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, I was going to ask you that. Even the employees, uh, mm-hmm. how they are, they are trained and so on. I think yeah. if every company would have, uh, you know, this kind of implementation of uh, service design. I mean, uh, the services could be improved so much more um, mm. in conjunction with uh, with the websites. There would be um, uh, better experiences for everyone. Where do you see the, uh, service design going uh, going in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I see service design as it has the foundation and the tools and the framework for us to do our jobs and pretty much solve any problem. So I think what would be interesting is to see us be able to use service design to maybe, this is very you know ambitious and aspiring, but to solve some bigger problems in life, right? Mm. To be able to solve some social justice issues, for example, or things that we're seeing in the world like climate issues that we're having. Mm. How can we use service design to help us solve some of those things? Um, And so um, I think that's exciting to be able to like apply it in those kinds of areas um, when we look at the world as a whole. Yeah, I can, I can totally see how that could work in the future. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I hope it will, it will happen. Uh, Related to, to, to climate change, I, um, some kind of field that I've, I've seen where there is a lot of issues where people nowadays uh, still don't know what to do is um, recycling. Um, people are still not aware of the consequences of uh, not recycling. Some people are just not aware of the whole process, what goes where, uh, what, what bag do I use, um, uh, the consequences of, of, of not recycling properly, how it will it affect the mm-hmm. world, and if I do recycle, what positive actions, uh, what positive um, outcomes will there be? Right, there is still a lot of yeah. um, a lot of confusion about the, the the whole recycling. Maybe we as designers we can do something about that. We can inform people and let them know the consequences of not recycling, and we can also let them know how to better recycle. So just throwing is, some ideas, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you think about climate change, and we think about recycling and things like that, and and having to go into a community and educate, yeah, there's, there's this, from a service design perspective, it's, it's sort of going in and understanding, you know, what's working well, what's not working, um, Mm -hmm. is the community educated about recycling, for example, do we need to educate the community, but how do we go about doing it, right? Do they gather anywhere where we, we can find a place where we can educate them, or, you know, there's simple things like, sometimes you see you see the garbage cans of like this is the garbage can this is a recycling can but there's no instructions on what's recyclable mm-hmm. and people just throw everything in there right and yeah. or they throw things in there like with a, a plastic cup with a full cup of coffee you know <laughs> things like that and you just little things where it might you know help um educating people along the way so i think to your point when you think about service design it's thinking about all those things from a kind of a macro level to that community level. And then as you get more information, being able to fine tune those recommendations based on, you know, the context that you are, you are in. Yes. Yes. And I really hope that is going to happen. 
uh, the whole field of design is evolving. I don't see why it can't take that, that path, you know. We'll see in the next few years what happens. I'm very yes. curious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks a lot for uh, for uh, dropping by the podcast. I mean, this uh, was a wonderful session. I got to learn a lot about um, creative directing and and really everything about uh, page paging structures and and website redesigns. Uh, and this session was very very uh, educational for me and for awesome. my guests. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad it was helpful. Thanks for listening to the whole podcast. I really had a good time speaking to Eleni today about website redesigns. If you would like to give feedback about the podcast episode or about the, the, the whole podcast, um, you can contact me on LinkedIn or by email and it will be highly appreciated because it will help our podcast improve. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify by clicking that follow button on the top of the podcast and I will see you in the next episode. So stay tuned.